So now for one more time, let us listen. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may become children of God who is in heaven. For God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And will you please pray with me? So I'll tell you my favorite discernment joke. And uh, this joke highlights in particular uh, this difficult part of discernment. Remember I said there was one difficult part, which is the issue of our attachments, our ideas about how things should be. So there's a small village and there's a very holy man who lives in the village and he lives on the second floor of a building and uh, he spends all his time in prayer, and he's devoted his entire life to God. And one day, uh, the village gets news that there is a flash flood coming, and they need to evacuate the village. And so they're all getting ready, and they're getting packed up, and some people say, oh, you know, we must get the holy man. And so they drive up to the building, they run up, to his room, and they said, holy man, holy man, flood is coming. You must leave the village. He says, no, no, that's fine. God will save me. 
I say, okay. Off they go, get in their car, drive off. The flood begins to come, it starts to get higher and higher, and now it's up to the top of the first floor, and somebody comes by in a canoe, and uh, they pull up to the window, and they jump in, and run up to the holy man's room. Holy man, holy man, you must leave. You're going to die. The flood is here. No, it's fine. God will save me. Okay, off they go, canoe down the stream. Flood gets a little higher, uh, and now it's kind of lapping up at the windows of the second floor, and uh, the roof of this building happens to be flat, and now suddenly a helicopter lands on the top of the building, and uh, some people get in the stairwell to the roof, and they come running down to Holy Man's room, and they say, Holy Man, this, this is it. This is your last chance. The flood is, is here. You will die. You must come with us. No. God will save me. Oh, okay. Off they go. The helicopter leaves. Flood covers the building, the holy man drowns. Gets up to heaven, is like, I want an appointment with God. So, okay, so off, off he goes down the hall, gets an appointment, says, God, I do not understand. I've devoted my entire life to you. Every minute I gave up so much. I could have been a successful business person. I could have had lots of money. Nothing. I gave up all of that. I spent my entire life, and you could not save me from this flood? And God's like, what are you talking about? I sent a car. I sent a canoe. I sent a helicopter. Okay. We have to pay attention. We have to pay attention. Uh, this scripture that we've been listening to over and over again this week is really hard. It's really, really hard. In fact, it's so hard that I have had many very faithful Christians say to me some version along the line of, you know, really Jesus was just kidding when he said this. He wasn't being serious. Or maybe he was applying it just to himself because he's so holy and, you know, he can handle this but it really didn't mean it. I mean, I guess that's one point of view if that sort of gets you through your day, uh, but I don't really think that's true. Uh, and many, many people, although a distinctly small minority of people throughout history, uh, have taken this scripture very seriously and have tried to live out uh, this way of being in the world. And it uh, costs us a lot. It costs us a lot. So I want to tell you a story about a community that uh, took this uh, word uh, extremely seriously. And for those of some of you bumped into me, remember several years ago when we had little labels on our chests with funny little numbers on it, we were walking around telling each other. And one of the numbers on my little label uh, was 526. And so in 526, uh, an Irishman uh, set out into the North Sea on, uh, in a tiny little boat. 
Now, when I say tiny little boat, uh, maybe you're imagining, you know, your nice boat with a big motor and all this stuff that you're going around in. Uh, these boats that, that the monks used in those days uh, were basically an oversized fruit basket. They were about this big around. I've seen replicas of them. I would not get out on this lake in one of these boats. I cannot imagine shoving off into the North Sea. If any of you have been to the North Sea, it's a pretty intense body of water. I cannot imagine uh, shoving off into that body of water in one of those little boats. Uh, but he did, and uh, he landed on what has come to be called the island of Iona. And he started a monastery there. And the monastery uh, flourished for hundreds of years uh, until they ran into a bit of a problem, or a bit of a problem ran into them. And the problem was the Vikings. And so, uh, because starting in about the 11th century, uh, the Vikings started sailing north around the north coast of Scotland and up through Iceland and even to uh, what we now call Canada. Uh, and the Vikings uh, really didn't buy into the love your enemy kind of thing. So the Vikings would show up and they would land on the beach at Iona. And Iona is a very tiny island. Uh, it's uh, four and a half miles long at its longest point, and it's less than a mile wide. So it's a very small place, and the monastery was there, and there's a little beach uh, down from the monastery. So the Vikings would land uh, on the island, and the monks, uh, they were part of the Benedictine order, and the monks really believed that you should offer hospitality to everyone. Uh, you should try to love your enemy. Uh, you should uh, greet all strangers as Christ. That's uh, one of the rules in the Benedictine rule. Greet all strangers as Christ. And so uh, the Vikings would land on the beach. The monks would send a little welcome group down. Two or three monks would go down to greet them. And the Vikings would kill them. And, you know, it turns out this is not a sustainable model of ministry. And so this went on uh, for a couple of hundred years, uh, off and on, as the various raids came. But eventually, uh, in the early 15th century, uh, the last abbot of Iona died. And the few remaining monks uh, got in their little boats and headed off to wherever else they might start new communities. And you know, I wonder about that uh, last abbot, and if you go to Iona uh, in the sanctuary all the way at the end, kind of if this was the end of the sanctuary, uh, the last abbot is buried there. And, and so when I was there and uh, praying in that place and thinking about him, I, you know, I was wondering if he thought, uh, gee, we've, you know, we failed. Uh, this, this didn't work. God didn't help us. God didn't show up. God didn't answer any of our prayers. I wonder what he was thinking. And the monastery fell into ruin uh, for 700 years. And one of the reasons that 
I bring up that number in particular is because, you know, when we think about this whole issue of what is God doing in the world and what is God doing in our lives and life things, you know, our time frame is super short. Right? Our time frame is super short. It's basically our life, because right? we're very self-centered in our little bubble. Like, that's the important time frame, right? My life. Maybe my kids' lives, maybe my grandkids' lives, but pretty short. Uh, God is working on a much bigger time frame, much bigger. And one of the things that spiritual practice does is it actually draws us into that bigger frame. So Iona fell into ruin for 700 years. And then in the early 20th century, in the midst of the great worldwide depression, a pastor in Glasgow uh, was looking around his parish and uh, he saw a couple things. He saw some theology students at his seminary where he uh, was teaching part-time. And he said, well, I have these theology students and they're learning about theology, but they don't really know how to work. He said, and then in my parish, I have all these unemployed carpenters who know how to work, but don't necessarily know all that much about theology. And we're all kind of sitting around uh, in difficult straits. What can we do about this? And he happened to hear about the monastery at Iona. And at that point, the monastery was owned by, I mean, the whole island was owned uh, by the sixth Duke of Argyle. You may have heard of his socks. Right? That, that is where Argyle socks come from. And, uh, and, you know, this was one of his many, many properties. He probably didn't even know the island was there. And uh, so this pastor writes to the Duke and says, uh, Can you, would you give me the monastery? I've got these people and I want to go rebuild it. And his vision was that the theology students and the carpenters would go to the island, and during the day, the carpenters would teach the theology students how to work, and they would work on rebuilding the monastery, and at night, the theology students would teach the carpenters theology. And they would learn to see each other in this beautifully mutual kind of way. And the Duke of Argyle wrote back, yeah, sure, this thing's a bunch of rubble and I don't really care. So fine, you can have it. So they set off to rebuild the monastery. And the week before they got there, they got word that a giant load of lumber that apparently had fallen off a ship somewhere in the North Sea had washed up on the beach. And they used that lumber uh, to do the first repairs of the monastery. This was the beginning of what is called the Iona community, which is now a worldwide uh, spiritual community. And the monastery of Iona and the island of Iona is now one of the most visited Christian pilgrimage sites in the world. Hundreds of thousands of people come through there. And you see, the, the power of the prayers of those monks for the first 700 years of the monastery's existence 
continued, continued that movement of the Spirit, and it reappeared and flourished uh, in a time frame that, you know, maybe none of us would really appreciate. Uh, something that we do is going to have an effect 700 years later. We might not care all that much about that. Uh, but God cares a lot about that. Now, one of the things about this community project is that it really highlights, in a way, the, the method that makes these words of Jesus possible. Right? And that is a mutual appreciation of anyone. So one of the things that spiritual practice does is we engage in our spiritual life and practice, right? because one of the things that we spend doing in this silent time is hearing a lot of ourselves. This is, what, this is actually one of the reasons we don't like spiritual practice, because we don't want to listen to ourselves so much. Uh, one of my teachers talked about uh, contemplative practice as uh, being very boring and disappointing. Uh, I don't think that would be a good marketing slogan. <laughs> Come, pray, it's boring and disappointing. <laughs> uh, Family Fest wouldn't get so far with that tagline. Right? And the reason it's boring and disappointing is because we are boring. Right? To listen to ourselves over and over and over again, we're kind of boring. You know, I've been listening to the same stuff in my head for like 40 years. It's like, would you please stop? Just, you know. And not only is that boring, but we're also kind of disappointing. Right? And so we have to sit with that boredom and disappointment, and we also then begin to sit, though, with this incredible love and this incredible goodness that arises as well. As, as those gaps in our bubble get bigger and bigger and bigger, and God becomes more and more present to us, the thing that happens is that this amazing compassion for ourselves uh, begins to arise in us. This amazing compassion and all these great things we say, you know, we're a child of God, God loves us, all of this, most of that we don't believe, and we don't really experience. We may believe it in our heads, we don't really feel it in our hearts very much, but that's one of the things that spiritual practice does. We actually begin to get it. We have these incredible moments of like, wow, I'm really the beloved. I'm really this wonderful creation. And so as that begins to happen in us for ourselves, the next thing that happens is that we start to have that for other people. We start to have that for other people. Uh, one wonderful spiritual practice that really helps with this is when you have an enemy, when you have somebody you're having a really hard time getting along with, is to imagine them as a baby. Because, you know... All babies are really cute, most of the time, right? Most of the time, until we're ready to get on that 6,000-mile trek, <laughs> right? But to imagine them as the good part of the baby, <laughs> the good moments, right? Uh, because when we see a baby in its best moments, 
we have uh, an incredible experience of connection and compassion. And one of the things that, uh, again, as we study all of this from our scientific point of view, we're learning amazing things about uh, the neurological connections that occur between people. And, and again, uh, spiritual teachings have known this for a long time, uh, but now we're getting this new language around this. And uh, there are these things called mirror neurons, uh, where when you make a face to your child, uh, the child mirrors that same thing in their brain. Right? If you uh, like have an itch or something and you scratch your arm uh, and your kid is watching, the place for arm lights up in their brain. Right? There is this incredible experience of empathy and compassion that is built into us. Right? And that what the world does and what this ego process does is attempt to squash that and wipe that out. But what our life of practice does is that it enhances that. It enhances that. And so now, the people who are our enemies, we actually also see them as children of God. And we have incredible compassion for them. And we begin to be curious about them. We begin to want to know their stories and who they are and their troubles and where they've come from and what they're like. And we don't shut them off away from ourselves with labels and with our ideas about how wrong they are, how bad they are. We're not afraid of them. And so, you know, much like this pastor who had this idea that, you know, working class people and theology students who often are sort of in a different realm and at odds with each other a little bit, if they lived together and worked together and ate together and appreciated each other's gifts and skills and abilities, that they would come to really love each other, which is exactly what happened, which is exactly what happened. Okay. So we're all uh, going away from here, and this is, you know, the most nice, comfy bubble possible, right? Super nice, comfy, except when we swan dive onto the ground and the slip and slide. Ah, <laughs> uh, Mark's like, then it's not so nice and comfy. <laughs> then you're like, <laughs> right, right. He, he, there were all these voices saying, don't do it, don't do it. All those voices went into the ignore category. <laughs> That's what he told me this morning at breakfast. They all went into the ignore category, <laughs> flying down the hill, and I'm not Superman. Ugh, drat. <laughs> right? This is the nicest, most comfy bubble. And we're now all going back out into the world. And we certainly are very aware of the fact that uh, out in the world, uh, love your enemies is not a big thing right now. It's not a big thing right now. And sadly enough, uh, people in faith communities are some of the worst offenders of not trying that. 
faith communities from all spectrums, types, whatever, it doesn't matter. Right? And the amount of hating our enemies, right? the amount of uh, going by that older rule that Jesus talks about uh, is uh, massive. It's massive. And we're all tempted to be pulled into that, whatever our little community is from outside of here. So my encouragement for all of us really are two things. Uh, one is to practice our faith, to not squeeze God into the smallest amount of time. <laughs> that was a great way of putting it. That is what we're always doing. We're trying to squeeze God into the smallest amount of time. So to not do that and to really practice our faith. And also to begin to consider as we go about our days and our lives and our online use and all of the things that we do, and to really think about those things through this lens. Are we loving our enemies? Are we even trying a little bit? Or are we just engaging in the endless, age-old human practice of hating our enemies? You know, which is very easy for us to do. I mean, it, it is. It's just what we do. Right. Right. Yeah, so here's one thing that's really important to understand. Loving our enemies, loving our enemies does not necessarily say anything about how we engage with them in compassionate ways, right? But the thing is we have to first start by loving them in order to find those solutions. This is one of the things I was talking about early on uh, in the week, how we want to jump to the solutions first. Right? We want to, what do I do? What do I do? Right? Without kind of laying the groundwork, the spiritual groundwork of being in that place of openness and compassion. Right? And so, so we see a difficult situation and we immediately start to freeze up and kind of panic and get distressed or get angry or get anxious. And we immediately start thinking, okay, what do I do about this situation? And one of the first things to do is to actually work with ourselves with that kind of reaction. Right? So, Am I coming to this situation out of a place of lovingness? Or am I coming to this situation out of a place of fear or hatred or anxiety? Because how we come to that situation makes a huge difference in what we decide to do. And what we decide to do. Uh, and so there is no uh, rote kind of fix to every situation. And that's one of the problems too, is that we want, you know, we want that, you know, seven steps to fix every enemy. <laughs> right? The seven, seven loving steps to fix every enemy. <laughs> right? 
There, there's no such thing. There's no such thing. Right? So the, the um, and I'll give you a very funny example of this, which is, uh, may seem kind of trivial. I was in the subway in New York City once. This was a long, long time ago. Uh, and there was clearly a, a fairly mentally unstable person on the subway platform with me. And he had this long metal pole. <laughs> I have no idea you know, where he got this thing or what this was. And he was slowly circumambulating the subway platform, banging this pole on the ground. And this noise was so annoying. I mean, it was echoing in the entire station, and you could just look around at everybody, and it was driving everybody nuts, and everybody hated this guy. It was just awful. It was just awful. And it was very clear that he was not going to stop. And he's walking around, and he's going and going, and he's turning the corner. Now he's going down the other side of the track, banging this thing. Oh, my gosh, it was horrendous. And it was late at night, so the trains weren't coming quickly, so we were stuck on this platform with this guy. And I'm thinking, okay, so what might be an, an interesting intervention here? Because he's driving me nuts. I didn't like him. I mean, I didn't like what he was doing. And so I decided I, I stood on the platform with my back to him. So he's coming down the platform, and I'm hearing him, you know, bang. Bang, bang. And just as he got, you know, which within a distance that I thought was pretty close, I just turned around and I looked at him and I smiled at him. I just stood there smiling at him. And he looked at me and he put down his pole and he stopped. And it was so great. (laughs) It was so great. And then he just stood and we all waited for the train together. And that was it. That was it. So, you know, I think that, that, the, uh, that the very challenging, as I said, the very challenging part of these teachings, uh, and this is the starting point of discernment, is to admit that we don't know what to do. Right? That we don't, this is one of the things about being a creature, is to admit that we don't know what to do. Right? That, that God knows what to do, and we don't. And so we begin our discernment with whatever situation that is, with the sense that I don't know what to do, I can't necessarily fix this, but what I can do is be present with a sense of love and compassion. That's the only thing I know how to do. And out of that, maybe some other things will arise, and maybe they'll fix the situation, or maybe they won't. There are many things that we can't fix and that will not get fixed. But what we do know is that if we're there with a spirit of love and compassion, it's better than if we're there with a spirit of hatred. I used to be in charge of treatment at a school for really disturbed teenagers for a number of years. And 
Uh, and these kids uh, came out of the most horrible nightmare upbringings you can imagine. And they were so damaged. They were so damaged. And people would ask us all the time, you know, people from the school districts or the evaluators, the mental health people, they would ask us, they would say, well, you know, is your school working? Is it making these kids better? And I would say to them, I always had the same answer. I said, you know, I have no idea where these kids are going to end up after they get out of here. And they may still end up in prison or they still, you know, may do terrible things. You know, I don't know. They're so damaged uh, that, that who knows what will happen to them. I said, but there is one thing I can absolutely tell you for certain is that every day that they're here, they're having a better day than if they weren't here. And that matters. I don't know how it matters, but it does matter. And so when we let go of outcome, when we let go of our need to fix, when we, when we really give this sense of control back to God, when we understand that the arc of the universe is massive, right? remember, 700 years, everybody was sitting there going, man, that monastery at Iona, that really stunk. That just was totally unsuccessful. Right? Until 700 years later, people are like, oh my gosh, look at this incredible holy place. Right? So when we allow ourselves to let go of all of that sense of outcome and expectation. And we say that what is enough is for me to engage deeply in my life of faith. That is when we can really enter out into the world in a courageous way. And that is when we can really enter out into the world in a loving way. And we can begin at least a little bit to try to take these words of Jesus seriously. Uh, thank you very much. It's been a blessing to be with all of you. Thank you for your time and attention. And it's just been wonderful. Amen.